started last week a series on kind of contemporary issues, looking at issues that are going to be significant in the upcoming election. They're not issues that we're kind of pushing out there and making them issues. They're issues that are addressed by both political parties. They're issues that are addressed by the media on a regular basis. And one of the concerns that, as a pastor, I have is that we be people who are biblically informed. So we're going to just spend a little bit of time working through some specific issues so that we can gain clarity on this topic and have uh, wisdom in being salt and light in the world that God has called us to live in. A couple thoughts each week. I'm just going to give you a couple foundational thoughts that I think should influence and affect our participation in the country that we live in in terms of the political system. Okay, and this, I just want to say this as, if you will, background, foundational statement. And the first thing that I want to share this morning is this. Okay, we as Christians should not place our hope in a party or in a politician. Okay? Uh, and, and sometimes we can sound like that's what we're doing, and I think we need to be careful that we, as we talked about last Sunday morning, laying the foundation and starting point is our hope should be in Christ. And the, the fix or gaze and focus of our eyes should be on Jesus. Okay? Here's what we know will happen on November in November on the first Tuesday of the month. Here's what we know. Okay? We know that we will vote and elect a person, and we know that that person will disappoint us. Okay? That's what you can be absolutely sure of. Okay? As I thought of this, I thought of the Old Testament storyline, <clears throat> the flow of the Old Testament Scriptures. And I think if you study the Old Testament Scriptures, here's what you're going to see, especially reading through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. You will see a cycle. Okay? And that cycle goes something like this. Okay, there is great hope because a new king rises. He tends to be very good. But eventually you find, in the case of almost every king in the Old Testament, you will find moral failure and finally death. Why? Because humanity has fallen. Okay, we have limitations, limited perspective, limited power. We may want to do the right things, but lack the ability to put it into place. So that causes us to, I think, gain a, a biblical view of things that our final hope, is in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Okay, so as we look at this, we as a church are not going to say we endorse candidate A or B. Okay, it's not, I do not believe that that is the job of the church. If you ask my personal opinion, I would be glad to share with you my personal opinion. But I don't think that the job of the church is to identify which individual or party to vote for because they will all, in fact, disappoint. And the truth is this, neither party fully captures the total biblical picture of Christian social ethics and concerns. It just, there just isn't one that gets it all right. And so I think it's important that we put that out there. Individually, here's what I would encourage you to do. Join a party. Join the party that you believe God wants you to join based on biblical principles. And be active. All right? Get involved. Make a difference. I believe that together we as the church should work to advance change in our culture, in our community. We have a responsibility from God to be actively engaged in the issues that are of concern for us, relating to and influencing the world that God has called us to live in by sharing the good news and by acting as people driven by the love of God. Second question that comes up, I think, is this. Is such a discussion about these, these issues appropriate? Okay, should I, as a pastor, address these kinds of concerns? And I, I, I think I can say this safely. The overlap of political issues and biblical truth is inevitable. 
I believe it is unavoidable that the issues of concern that are floated out there by political parties at some level overlap with biblical truth. Not all of them, but many of them have biblical ramifications. And so I think as you study the life of Jesus, as you study the teaching of Jesus, when he says to the church, you are the salt of the world, you are the light of the world. When he says that, I think he's talking about an unavoidable overlap of where we live and what God says about how we should live in the place where we live. Okay, so there's an unavoidable nature of that. The Bible that we hold on our laps each Sunday, and hopefully on a daily basis, is truth for life. All right, it's instructions about how we ought to live and about the decisions that we ought to make. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 on the sheet in front of you says this. It says, all scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. So the word of God that we have preserved for us is to be a light for our paths. It's to be the place that we look to find out how to live a godly life. It affects daily decisions. It does this so that the man of God, the Christian person, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul will later say to the church in verse 2 of this same text, chapter 4, he says this, preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. So what do we have? We have a truth from God that overlaps with issues in our world. The job of the church, okay, is to speak the truth of God's word into our cultural situations, into social concerns, into areas that affect our daily life. So I believe that our involvement in the issues as individuals is vital. And I believe that the church's involvement in speaking to moral issues, social issues, is critical. And so I believe we should not be silent, but we should speak. Christians have done this historically. Okay, if you study the history of the defeat of slavery, you will find that Christians were at the center of it. A man named William Wilberforce in England, a man named Abraham Lincoln in America, stood based on biblical convictions to fight the evil of slavery. The women's suffrage movement, many Christian women, stood at the front in that movement and led the charge for the right to vote. The civil rights movement was led by many different Christians standing in pulpits, speaking the truth of God's word in a loving way. So I I think as we look at history, we're compelled to say, you know what? God has given us truth. He has given us light to shine, salt to spread. And the church has historically done that. And we, as Christians, ought to be sure that we do that. Our involvement should be very informed. And I've thought about this. I've thought about where would I tell you to go to be informed on the issues that are important in our day? All right, where, where should you go? And I, I, I came up with one this week. remember reading it about a year ago. It's called the Manhattan Declaration. It is a nonpartisan, multi-denominational document that addresses most of the issues that we'll be talking about over the next few weeks. Okay, here's what I would encourage you to do. Go read that document. And if you have courage, all right, go read the platform of the Democratic and Republican Party. One's 32 pages. One is 60-plus pages. Okay, find out. You can go get informed. It takes something like the Manhattan Declaration that is a biblical response to some of these kinds of issues and let your heart be informed so that as we exercise our saltiness, as we exercise being light in our world, we do it from an an informed perspective. We're not just guessing, but we really do know the issues that are out there so that we can weigh in in a way that is responsible and informed. 
The other thing I want to say is this. The issues that we will cover are not the only issues that matter. Okay, I am not going to pretend to cover all of the issues that are important to us as Christians. Okay, I'm going to focus our discussion to a couple areas that I think are crucial and vital to the success of our country. The only other principle I would lay down is, as I think kind of a ground rule for discussion and for engaging, is that we must speak the truth of God in love and humility. Here's what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Okay, that, what is that doing? It's setting the tone, the attitude with which we engage in the discourse in our culture. I think that the interpretation of those statements would be something like this. Be thoughtful and gentle and yet operate out of a heart of convictions. So Jesus is saying, you go out there, be light, be truth, speak, engage with people. But do it in a way that is thoughtful and gentle. And if you do that, even if you do it perfectly, okay, you do it with a, with a humble, wise, informed, and gentle spirit, okay, what should you expect? Okay, because I think most of us think, well, if somebody engaged in a discussion with someone and somebody got heated in the discussion, somebody's attitude was wrong. Okay, and I, I felt that way after I've kind of entered into a discussion with someone and things got a little more heated than they probably should. I thought... Was it that my approach was wrong? And the answer is sometimes yes, but not always. Jesus Christ certainly endured a lot of opposition. But I don't think that any of us are going to say, well, Jesus, the reason Jesus had that trouble is because his attitude was wrong. Okay? I think a few months ago, a man named Kathy Truett made a statement about his personal belief about same-sex marriage. Okay? He's the uh, CFC, CEO and founder of a company called Chick-fil-A. Okay? Hey was asked what his conviction was, his feeling was, on same-sex marriage. He spoke that conviction. No one has questioned his attitude. No one has questioned his demeanor. But what happened? Okay? A rain of fire fell on that man's head. Okay? And there were two responses to that. (laughs) I like Kathy Truett's response. I'm uncomfortable with the other response, and that is that a lot of... (laughs) And here's my concern, okay? A lot of people went out and supported him in a public display of us and them. Okay, now, if you did that, I'm not saying you're wrong. Okay, but here's, what I, here's the question I want to raise. What is the wisest approach for us as believers as we engage in this debate? Okay, should we get sucked into contemporary events and set up a paradigm in which we have people that disagree with us and people that disagree and people that agree with God's word that we're always kind of dividing and look like look like we're playing partisan politics with issues. Okay, I went to Chick Fil A about five days later. Why? Because I want to support a business like that and I like their food. Okay, but I, I, I just sometimes I, I'm asking myself: Are we being wise, God, in our response? And I don't think that when we're taking sides and all the, all the you know, conservative Christians are wrapped around Chick-fil-A today, and that's our means of saying that, yeah. I'm just telling you, I'm, I don't I'm not telling you wrong if you went, okay? But what I sensed in that interchange was this. I sensed that there was, for many people, a greater passion for standing up for that issue, which I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that issue this morning. Okay, but, but I, my question is this. Am I as passionate as my, in my desire to make the gospel of Christ known for sinners? Amen. 
Okay, and I think that's the ten, it's the tension, okay? And we're all going to fall on different sides of these kinds of issues. So please understand what I'm saying. The question we need to be asking ourselves is what's driving me, us and them? Because sometimes for me it is. I have a competitive spirit. I want to win. Okay, I want what I want in this election. I'll be glad to say that. Okay, I have my desires. I have what I want. But if that's the attitude with which I engage the world around me, I'm not sure that that is being wise as serpents, serpents and harmless as doves. Okay? While understanding that even though a man like Kathy Truett spoke his conviction, he got a clear and resounding statement from the dominant culture. What was the statement? You're not allowed to share that opinion in public. Okay? And that statement, I want to say, we need to stand up and say, no, we have a God-given responsibility to share our convictions in the public square. Okay? Because what is the world trying to do? The world at large is trying to pressure biblical Christians into the margins of life. I've illustrated it in this way. Here's what the world wants to do. Take your Bible and your biblical convictions and put it in the margins. It's not allowed to be part of the main discourse. Okay, that's the world you live in. If your kids go to a secular college, that's what that, that's the pressure they're going to hear as they seek to maintain and hold to biblical convictions. They're always going to feel marginalized. What do we mean by that? You're not part of the main story. You're part of what's said in the margins. What you say is not central. It's peripheral. Keep your biblical convictions out of the public discourse. Okay, that's, that's just where you and I live today. Okay, and I think it's important that we understand that, but that we, as we respond to that, that we don't get ugly and draw lines that say it's us and it's them. Okay, I'm just, I just feel like we need to be careful. We shouldn't fight hatred with hatred. We, fight, we should fight hatred with love and truth. Okay, so Ephesians 5 says, let's speak the truth in love. Okay, because often what happens Often what happens is this. I get so worked up in a discussion and a debate with someone that my attitude makes the person I'm talking to deaf. Okay? They become deaf because the way that I'm saying it is not loving. Okay? And I, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think that a majority of us have a problem with this. I think in our personal inter interactions, sometimes things are very strong. And I understand that, okay? I'm very strong on what I believe about some of these issues. Very strong on the ones that we're going to address in the pulpit. Okay? And we do get passionate. But I'm just saying, make sure you are mixing love in with those deep abiding convictions that we are called by God, I believe, to stand for, even if it brings the response to Kathy Truett God. Okay? So you need, you can, you can have the exactly right attitude. And what happens to most of us is when we get a strong response, well, you're just being mean or you're being negative or you're being critical. Most of us go home and do a lot of what we call like navel gaze and we think, was it really me? Okay? I think, you know, sometimes we have to realize we're, we're, we're going to not always get it right, but by and large, we should be people that stand for our biblical convictions. The first issue I want to address in this set of discussions is this the discussion of marriage and family. And I would encourage you, I, 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 I printed out portions of the Manhattan Declaration on marriage, on the value and the importance of this institution to our culture. And I just want to give you a few very simple thoughts this morning, okay? One is that marriage is defined by God. Secondly, it is designed by God. Thirdly, it is sustained 
by God. Okay, so let's just look at, through this list real quickly, and then we'll seek to apply these truths to our daily experience. First thought is this. Marriage is defined by God, not by the culture. God, by virtue of being the creator, has the right to define and to describe what marriage should be and how it should function. And I I appeal back to the book of Genesis. I list for you verses 25 through 28 of Genesis 1. What is it? It's the creation of man, male and female. At the end of that discussion, you find this idea that the man was alone and God said, that's not good. I will make a helper suitable for him. So let's pick up in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 18. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So that God is the one who is defining this relationship. He gives us here a description of how he in his wisdom put it together. Verse 19, now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever he called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and the beasts of the field. But for Adam, there was no suitable helper found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in that place. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken from the man, and he brought her to him. Okay, now what is this? This is the first marriage ceremony. Okay, who's it performed by? Who's by? Who is it organized by? It's organized by God. And the record of this, I believe, is to establish the pattern that God intended for human sexuality and marriage, which is a basic building block of the culture that you and I live in. Okay, so when we look at this text, what are the basic principles we learn? Here's the first thing we learn. Marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman. That is God's definition. Okay, and that is the appropriate biblical understanding. All, and here's something that, that kind of stuck out to me yesterday as I was thinking through this discussion. As you study through Scripture, you will find that all directives for marital relationships in Scripture are given to who? Men and women living together. Okay, just, it, it, it's a simple thought, okay? But you study through Scripture, you look at all of the directives, all of the principles that apply to the marital relationship. Every one of them is directed to either a man or a woman living in relationship with each other. Okay, so it is a relationship between a man and a woman. It is an exclusive relationship. That is to say this, God's design from the beginning was one man and one woman, which means there should be, in, our con- in the context of our homes, no affairs, emotional or actual and physical. Okay, we are to protect the sanctity of this relationship that in God's understanding is exclusive. So in our marital vows in America, what do we say? To give yourself to that person and them alone as long as you both shall live. What are we saying? It is an exclusive relationship between a man and a woman. And in the realm of Scripture, it is intended by God to be a permanent relationship. You go to verse 24 of this chapter, Genesis 2. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Okay, and the idea here is an intertwining, a gluing, a binding together that in the eyes of God is intended to be a permanent one flesh relationship for life. Here's the way Jesus interpreted it. 
He said God told them to join together in Matthew chapter 19 and they became one flesh. And then what did Jesus say? What God has joined together, let no one separate. Okay, so what's it to say? Definition of marriage is between a man and a woman, a man and a woman. It's an exclusive relationship with the idea of permanence. Why? Why? Well, you actually find out very clearly why when you look at the relationship, first of all, between Israel and God. God was in a covenant, unbreakable relationship with them. And when you move into the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5, what do you learn? You learn that the relationship that God designed between man and a woman is a picture of the unbreakable love of Christ for his church. Okay, so this relationship is intended by God to be permanent. What are the threats to God's definition of marriage in our culture? And the threats are a lot broader than what most of us tend to think. Okay, there are in our culture... The threat of same-sex marriage, yes. And that is an issue that is out there in the political debate, pushed out into the front by both parties. There is also the threat of divorce. There's the threat of extramarital affairs. And as you read Scripture, here's what you find. God is dead serious about the issue of marriage. And I believe that we should be as well. In the Manhattan Declaration, this statement is made. In Scripture, the creation of man and woman... And their one flesh union as husband and wife is the crowning achievement of God's creation. In the transmission of life and the nurturing of children, men and women joined as spouses are given the great honor of being partners with God himself. Marriage then is the first institution of human society. Indeed, it is the institution on which all other institutions have their foundation. In the Christian tradition, we, defer, we refer to marriage as holy matrimony. To single the fact that it is an institution ordained by God and blessed by Christ in his participation in the, at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. In the Bible, God himself blesses and holds marriage in the highest esteem. So as we enter into this discussion, what's the issue at stake? The issue at stake is the truth. So that we don't have to spend all of our time criticizing the opposition. It's there. But we should spend our time exalting the truth of God's word. Loving marriage. Loving our homes. So that we can be lights in our world. They go on to say this. Vast human experience confirms that marriage is the original and most important institution for for sustaining the health, education, and welfare of persons in society. Where marriage is honored. And where there is a flourishing marriage culture, everyone benefits. The spouses themselves, their children, the communities, and the societies in which they live. Threats to that in our culture, out-of-wedlock marriage, non-marital sexual cohabitation, and a devastating rate of divorce. Okay, those are things that are threats to marriage. And the redefinition of it is also a threat. They go on to say, we confess with sadness that Christians and our institutions have often scandalously failed to uphold the institution of marriage and to model for the world the true meaning of marriage insofar as we have too easily embraced the culture of divorce and remain silent about social practices that undermine the dignity of marriage. We repent and call upon Christians to do the same. The impulse to redefine marriage in order to recognize same-sex and multiple, par- multiple partner relationships is a symptom rather than the cause of the erosion of marriage in our culture. 
It reflects the loss of an understanding of the meaning, and I would use the word this morning, of the definition of marriage as embodied in our civil and religious law and in our philosophical tradition that contributed to shaping that that law. It is critical that that impulse be resisted. For yielding to it would mean the abandoning the possibility of restoring a sound understanding of marriage and with it, the hope of rebuilding a healthy marriage culture. If we just understand what he's saying, the redefinition that is going on threatens to destroy an institution that is foundational to culture by the design of God and throughout human history. Okay, so the reason that Christians should stand is this is an issue that reflects on the glory of God. Loving marriage is loving God. Loving your mate is loving God. And so may God help us just to, to first get an understanding of this definition and be aware of the threats that come against it. It is foundational as defined by God. Secondly, it is this. It is designed by God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is where I want you to look. And I'm just going to give you two areas in which it is designed by God or, or designed by God to be critical. First is, it is the context for sexual fulfillment and pleasure. 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 3. The husband shall fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And likewise, the wife to her husband. And the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, what's the thrust here? Okay, the thrust of this text, and I think the thrust of Genesis 2, talking about the one flesh relationship, is that marriage is the context in which sexual pleasure was intended to be enjoyed. Okay, and I think we need to say that clearly. Why? Because our children are growing up in a culture that is redefining that issue and showing it. Think of movies. Okay, think of when you watch movies. When's the last time you saw a couple in a movie engaging in sexuality in the context of marriage. Now think about that. Almost all that is put out in that way is what? It's extramarital. And there's this presumed, it's okay, threat to biblical truth. The context for that is a biblical, God-honoring marriage. All right, that's the, the setting in which God wants that to be enjoyed. Why is it there? It's intended to promote a deeper unity that is weakened by anything that is extramarital. Premarital and extramarital sex. And same sex, homosexuality. It doesn't matter what kind of sex it is. If it's outside of the God-given context, it destroys and undermines the value of this basic building block that God has given as a gift to humanity. If you're a single or if you struggle with identity, understanding who you are sexually. And I know there are people that wrestle with those things. You need to understand, you need to know that God's plan for you is marital and sexual purity. That's his desire for you. And I will, and hopefully we as a church will, and hopefully our culture will, encourage people to embrace a God-given understanding so that we protect this gift that God has given to us and designed to be experienced in the context of marriage. And I also believe that the home is given by God, men and women, as a context for raising our children. 
God, in his wisdom and by his design, placed children in a home. That's where he wants them to be raised. Okay, that is his design. And I believe, therefore, it is the best place for your children. Okay, we may send our our kids off to various institutions to get help and assistance in various ways. But I think the thing that we as Christians need to understand is God put children in the context of a home. In a home that had a man and a woman involved. Deuteronomy verse 6, or chapter 6 and verses 6 through 8 says this. It says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. This is mom and dad, impress these on your children. That's the context of this passage. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Okay, the idea is, have the word of God ever present in the things that do and in the things that see. Okay, have it ever present. Let it always be the guiding principle of your life. Your home, in the wisdom of God, is the best place for you to raise your children. And here's the verse that jumped out to me, kind of like the other one did, or the thought. That the commands that are given in Scripture to children relate to who? They relate to mom and dad. Okay, so I can go all the way back to the basic Ten Commandments to find that God's intention was the children will be raised by a man and a woman. That's the design of God. So Exodus 20 says what? Children, honor who? Your mother and your father. Folks, why? I think in simple truth, that's the design of God. And I think one of the best ways for us to kind of honor this conviction, this commitment to the definition of marriage, to the design of God in marriage, is to, is to embrace this and to love our homes, to love our marriages, to value them, so that our children can experience an unbelievable benefit. You know, I've never had a child come to me and complain about being raised in a good home. Never. Never. Why? Because it is a glorious gift. That you can give to your kids. And in order to have that gift. Here's what you need to do. You need to protect your heart sexually. So that when you come into the context of marriage. You're there. Really. You need to understand that God gave that home. As the context in which he wants children to be raised. And the moment. The opportunity. That you have from God to raise your children. Is so quick. It is so fleeting. It is momentary. And I'm. As one who is there. Okay, where the kids are kind of raised and, and wish we had more. Okay, I think my wife and I could both say that. Okay, seize the moment. Have you made mistakes? Yes, there are people in our church family who have experienced divorce. God is greater than that. His grace is greater than that. Love the home that God has given you and realize that there is no adequate substitute. And this to me is my conviction in this election. There is no adequate substitute for marriage as defined by God and designed by God in his word. Okay. There was a book about 10 years ago, just had an anniversary recently. The book is titled Heather has two mommies. Purpose of the book is to what? You can go read the author's preface. Here's the desire to normalize a same-sex marriage. Okay, to normalize it. Now, folks, can I just be honest with you? And I, I don't say this to people when I'm, when I'm talking to them about this issue in a way that's meant to be cutting. But I will say this very lovingly. The title is a lie. 
The truth is, Heather can't have two moms. It's forbidden by nature and God. You may put a child in the context of a home with two men and two women, but both of them can never be two moms and two dads. It, and, and, and so as you, as you think about it, you just realize that's absurd. But that's where our culture is, where the absurd becomes normal. That's where we need to take the truth of God's word, shine the light of biblical truth, and, and, and do it in a way that is positive. Love your marriage. And let that stand as a God-given testimony to the world around you. Threats to God's design, to God's design in this regard. All extramarital sex, whether it is hetero, homo, or bisexual, it does not matter. If it's outside of the God-given context, it threatens God's design. It devalues it. Cohabitation, pornography, the rise of sensuality in our culture, all of this threatens the design of God that sex and children are to be enjoyed in the context of a marital relationship. We live in a culture that is continuing to devalue the sanctity of sexuality and therefore of marriage. And it is affecting us in so many ways that are devastating. Folks, here's what I believe in this regard about the design and the definition. Once you remove absolutes, God's boundaries, once you start to move them, I believe all bets are off as to where a culture goes. That's why I like what the Manhattan Declaration says on this. I, and I agree with what God says. Okay, God speaks clearly on this issue. And I believe that we as Christians should live with deep convictions about these truths. The results of such shifts are disturbing. And you have to ask the question, if you're going to redefine it in this way, and there's nothing that prohibits you from doing that other than nature and God, then where do you stop the change? If you start doing what people say they are biologically inclined to do, and you say, well, anything you're biologically inclined to do, you must have been designed that way, therefore that kind of expression is okay. That's not what our laws say. That's not what any country governed by laws says. And so the, the, the question in our minds, and, and, and I think our hope to say, you know, we need to be people that love and value marriage actually, not just speaking it, but actually in the context of our daily life, we're letting the light shine. Okay, by loving the context that God has us in. If you're a single person, love the truth of biblical purity, of moral purity. Love it. Embrace it. Live it. That's what the world needs to see. They don't just need to have people yelling the truth to them. They need to hear it. They need to see it. They need to see people who actually live these principles and see it in a context that is not prohibitive and, and, and kind of old and arcane. They need to see it in the context of people that are vibrant and happy and upholding God-given principles, whether in singleness or in marriage. The last thought I would give to you on this issue of marriage, I think, is this. And I, I, if we're going to do it by being light, that is, make a difference in our culture, in the area of family in marriage... Okay, we need to realize that it must be sustained by God. Okay, look, all of us who are married, I think, can be honest and say, you know what, there are specific areas of failure in my relationship with my mate. There are areas in which I have not been what God wants me to be. Okay, that gets pointed out to me by my children and by my friends, and I thank God for that. Do I like it? No, I don't like it. Is it helpful and important? The answer is yes, yes. We need it. Iron sharp. We need that. Kind of sharpening. Why? It reminds us 
Love this woman. Love this man. Respect him. Love your kids. Value them. God put them there because that is the best place for them. And I want to say this real quick. Okay. I am not going to stand here this morning and say that two women that live together and have a child with them, I'm not going to say that they don't love that child. Okay? I'm not, I'm not accusing people of being unloving. I'm saying it is not by God's design what is best for that child. Okay? So that we're not always attacking motives, questioning people's intentions and love. It's not what this is about. It's not about whether these two individuals can actually love this child. That's not what it's about. It's about what's best by God's design. And what's best is a man and woman living together in a relationship that is characterized by permanence and fidelity, exclusive between a man and a woman, designed by God as the context for sexual purity and raising children, but confessing on a regular basis. I can't do this. I can't do this. I want to. If you said to me, Tim, do you want to love your wife as you should? My hand. Yes. <laughs> okay. Do you? Well, my, my arrogant response is what? Sure. What's the truth? Well, it's a different issue, isn't it? And so we, we wrestle with this. And the reason we're wrestling is our flesh is not inclined to embrace and love the thing that God's love. My flesh is inclined to love Tim Hoff. My flesh is inclined to want to be first. So Ephesians 5, I'll give you just three verses. Ephesians 5 and verse 3. It says that the church, God's people, should be characterized as being people, you can look at this verse, not having a hint of sexual immorality. Not a hint. Fear it. Fear it. If it's creeping into your life, extramarital sex, fear it. If it's creeping into your eyes, if it's creeping into sensuality, it's creeping into your relationships, fear it. Why? Because it will destroy what is precious to God. How do you do that? Hmm. Well, you just, you just make a decision. You just gut it out. Well, good luck. Good luck. Romans 8 says, if by the flesh we, we, we try to live, we will die. But if by the spirit we put to death the deeds of the flesh, we will live. We need God's help. A biblical marriage is sustained by God and marriage that glorifies God is because people have been transformed and changed and understand that marriage is a place where the love of God is best displayed to the world in which they live. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what comes after that in the chapter as far as the big chunks? You know what comes next? Husbands? Love your wife. After what? After surrendering everything that you are to the power of God, to his abiding presence in your heart. Once you have surrendered in that kind of a way, the things that you can't do become possible. Loving an imperfect mate, which all of us have, just like we have imperfect politicians. Loving an imperfect mate becomes a possibility. God will begin to create in you a desire to do that. Why? Because that's what the Spirit prompts. The first fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. If you're not loving your wife, it's not a matter of a decision. It's a matter of going to God and repenting about your lack of love and saying, God, I need you to sustain in my heart a reliable, steadfast love for my mate. So that we don't just sit back and say, well, we're together. That's God's design, isn't it? Permanence. Yes, it is his design. But it's intended to be a permanence characterized by love. That's God's design. It goes on in verse 33 to say, however, each of you must love his wife as he loves himself. And the woman must respect her husband. A godly home requires supernatural help.
Because the promises that you make on your wedding day are extensive. They're stunning. They're shocking. Sometimes you want to look at the person that's repeating it after you as a pastor. And you just want to say, be careful. Because you're going to say something right now that's going to affect the rest of your life. For good or for bad. And so may God help us. And this, be quite honest, in my heart, the most important thing to me is, how do we influence, in the context of an election season, how do we influence our culture in relationship to the issue of marriage? How do we do it? You can go out and rage about a topic. You can do that. But I'm going to tell you this. Truth without love, an old adage says, has no audience. You can, go out, you can go out and rage. You can put it on billboards. You can do all that stuff. I'm, I'm not saying that doing that is necessarily wrong. But I will tell you this. If that's all you do while simply existing in the context of your current marriage, you're not doing what God's called you to do. I do not believe that when Jesus said, be the light of the world, he meant put up billboards. I think he meant that your life is an advertisement for his glory. And for his passion, for his design, for his definition in the context of marriage. So at a practical level, do what? Well, be loving like Jesus and be truthful. Because the other side of the adage is this. Love without truth has no message. If all you do is say, well, I just love people too much to hurt them, then you love them too too little to give them the truth. We have to be courageous. We need to step out and speak the truth, even though at times it will be challenged and you will be rejected or ridiculed or marginalized. Respond in love. Don't apologize for truth. Value your marriage. Value sexuality in God's way. And what I mean by this is this. In your interactions at work, in the public square, in your neighborhood, be known as the woman or be known as the man or be known as the single person who is different. If I was not going to tell you something, this is not a hard directive It's not. I have three young daughters, okay, who have striven to the best of my knowledge to be what God wants them to be. I'm not saying that they've been perfect, but here's what I know. What they have faced over and over and over again is the sneer. The sneer that says, but you really don't have sex with someone. Like you've never... That... that, I'm going to tell you something. You know, my daughters are, two of my daughters are nurses. And the most disgusting things are discussed, you know, kind of at the desk overnight shift. Like, seriously. Things that you would find, oh my word, are you kidding me? And what happens? To the person that tries, that strives to uphold God's design for marriage and male-female relationships, there is ridicule, disdain, and unbelief heaped upon you. Are you ready for that? Because that's what's coming your way if you live the life that God wants you to live. But I am sure that the young lady or young man who can honestly say, I am striving to keep myself pure, has a regular audience. I am sure that people are viewing their life under a microscope to find out what makes you tick. And what makes them tick is a love for God's design. 
and for his glory in their life sexually, in their life maritally. The man that goes into his workplace and lives a life that is above reproach, that just simply could not be questioned as to his integrity with his wife, is speaking. And here's what I'm going to tell you. I think it's better than any billboard I've ever seen. I think it's better than any commercial I've ever seen. Is the man or woman who goes into their workplace, who spends time with their friends, and has unquestioned loyalty to their mate. That's the best way to say, here's what God says. Live it. Live it with deep convictions. For your children, show the blessing. And pass it on. Don't rage against the alternative. Instead, exalt the gospel of Christ. Folks, these issues that we're talking about, the issue of homosexuality, same-sex, these are complex issues. People have serious questions. I'm sure if we were being honest with each other in the context of this church, people have serious questions. Okay, here's what you need to know. You need to know, based upon 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that there is hope for change. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, give a catalog, of an, an unbelievable catalog of sins, historically, that today is completely believable. You know what Paul says at the end of that list? And it describes everything in it about what we talked about this morning. Here's what Paul says. He says, and such were some of you. Such were, that's what you used to be. And he goes on to say what? But you were washed and you were cleansed and you were changed. This one, someone says to you, do you think biblically that someone's identity can change? I think the answer from that text is such were some of you. What a, take that with you. Share that hope for the person that struggles with desires that they know are outside of the realm of scripture. Share that. And it's not just homosexuality. It's just a desire for sexuality and satisfaction and pleasure. Paul can say, that's what some of you were. Which is to say what? There was this whole catalog of sin was represented in the church in Corinth, but there were people there that were changed. By what? By the glory and power of the gospel of Christ. May God raise up an army of people that love God's design, that love God's definition, that do it in the power of the Spirit. Having a home that is for the glory and honor of God, that is the billboard that our world needs to see. So you can stand for truth without ranting. Okay? Without getting angry and bitter. You can do it in love. Love for God by loving what he loves. And showing to the world that a different kind of life is possible. It's because they think it's impossible. Think it can't be done. My response is, you're right, it can't. In your strength. But in the power of God, what do we say? All things are possible. My encouragement in this topic, go out and be a person of hope. Go out and be a bright light that shines in the context of your current marriage or in your singleness today for the glory of God. For the day that Jesus Christ returns. This brings us this morning to the Lord's table. Will we proclaim the truth again and again and again? That there is hope for change for you and me. And I'd like us to come to the Lord's table this morning with this thought on our minds. Such were some of you. 
What has God in his grace rescued you from? And what does God in his grace this morning want to deliver you from? That's the question I'd love you to come to the Lord's table with this morning. Paul said it this way. Examine yourselves. And then eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Which do what? They proclaim the Lord's death until the day that he comes. That there is hope for change. The things that people think can change. Can, under the power of God, really and truly change. Father, thank you for your word. 